Welcome back to Guerrilla Radio. Well, on February 9th, a train derailed outside East Palestine, Ohio. The toxic cargo purposefully ignited in a disastrously ill-advised attempt at environmental remediation has now sparked fears of what the effects of the chemicals released over the town will be for the people, livestock, and the ecology in and beyond East Palestine. Media covering the crash is poisoned too, as is now the common pattern, with differing political agendas piling on across social and legacy news platforms to leverage the story to their various advantage. David Rovick's frequent essays on political issues and societal observations are featured at Counterpunch and DissonantVoice.org, among other places. He's a broadcaster, musician, blogger, and author of the novel A Busker's Adventures. His weekly program this week with David Rovick's can be found through his website, DavidRovick's.com, and on Substack, where you can read his essays, listen to his hundreds of original songs, and catch his myriad interviews on topics of social relevance. His recent article, Communications for Indie Musicians Then and Now, is a reflection not only on his quarter century making a living as a touring musician, but of living and working in our mediated times. His new album is Killing the Messenger, due out any day now. Welcome back to the program, David. Thank you, Chris. Great to be back with you. Well, it's always fantastic to speak with you. And now you've got a new song just out commemorating uh, the event at East Palestine. And like so many of your songs, uh, they are a chronicle of our times, uh, especially American times. For the people that maybe don't know the background of the story, maybe they don't watch Legacy News at all, which is an increasing number. Uh, what exactly happened uh, on February 9th at East Palestine? Do we know the causes and so forth of this train derailment? Yeah, definitely. I mean, they. I think the. Um, they say the uh, the folks who who know about these things say that there's no question that if the modern brakes uh, braking system was in place as was going to be required after the last major few derailments, most notably in Canada, of course, at Lac Megantic, Quebec, in 2013, when 48 people were killed by the oil train that went off the you know, came off the, the bad breaking, understaffed, et cetera. And um, there were there was another derailment in, in Washington state soon after that, which was pretty much an identical situation, except without the people. It happened in the middle of nowhere. So nobody got hurt in that. But, uh, you know, it could have been in the center of a town like it was in Quebec. There's these trains going through uh, cities all over this country, including mine here in Portland. The the braking um, systems that were supposed to be uh, updated uh, back at after 2013 uh, were never updated because the rail lobbyists, uh, the freight lobby, you know, the rail lobbyists uh, lobbied Congress, both parties, and uh, ultimately got the bill defeated and it was never re put out there. So basically, it, it just never happened. The, these changes never happened. And of course, the rail system itself, regardless of the brakes of the trains are using, the rail system is really old and dilapidated and, you know, basically unfit for the kind of speeds, even though they're slow, that the freight trains are traveling at. And that's also the part of why some of the derailments have happened, like in Washington state at, um, several years ago. This, uh, yeah, this, and the, this train in East Palestine was apparently traveling on track that was basically hadn't been updated much since the 1860s. I'm, I'm ashamed to say I don't know what the Canadian situation is regarding the rail system here. I know that there's loads of uh, 
derailments going on that the, the infrastructure here is aged. Uh, I don't know if we've got the same corporate uh, uh, lobbying power in Canada as in the United States where they can dictate policies and then you know cut corners to, to uh, maximize their profits the way they, they do in the States. I, I was surprised to read how profitable the rail industry actually is. It's one of the most profitable investment industries in the United States because of their profit ratios, because they, they don't, they don't spend the money on upgrades and so forth. And they just take the crashes as the cost of doing business rather than the huge expense of up, upgrading their and maintaining properly the rail systems, which uh, I know is fantastically expensive. When you mentioned uh, Lac Magentique, that, uh, uh, disaster in Quebec in 2013. The, the rail cars there, it was again with the, the brake systems, they'd parked, it didn't derail in the sense that this train did as, as it was moving forward, but it has actually parked and rolled backwards down into the town into the town because the parking brakes didn't work and they only had one guy on board when there should have been more uh, you know monitoring it they weren't monitoring the quality of the brakes and it rolled down the hill and its uh, cargo uh, petrochemicals exploded in the heart of the town killing as you said 48 people and, and blowing out the whole heart of this picturesque little uh, Quebec town but um, in this case some video of the train that derailed in East Palestine people had waiting at crossing uh, in their cars were videoing the fire coming out of the wheels of this train as it passed by and yet nothing happened to stop it before its eventual uh, climactic catastrophe yeah I think in Canada there were they did make some kind of a change to the law after that uh, disaster, and th th they increased the staffing minimum on like you can't have seventy two cars with only one engineer in it. You have to have two now, I believe is is what 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 I recall. Well, you know, in this country now, because of the pipelines being blocked or stopped or uh, as a workaround, more and more of the tar sands oil and other noxious pro uh, uh, products are being transported by rail in this country uh, and some of these cars are miles long you know david years ago when i was a young man uh, my brother and i jumped a freight train you know like in the in the woody guthrie tradition mm. and uh rode it into the woods of northern ontario where it stopped in the middle of the night in the middle of the summer and we were so we were such a, a noobs we didn't realize what that meant, but we're soon almost devoured alive by mosquitoes and black flies. And so oh, we God, ran yeah. to take shelter from the boxcar to one of the, the, the engines, you know. And mm. we had to run in the dark along the track for half a mile. And that wow. was back in those days. I think the trains are even bigger, bigger now. Mm -hmm. How big was this train, do you know? Let's see. Several dozen cars, 11 of which were full of toxic chemicals. I can't remember the number altogether, but um, the uh, apparently there there are laws around like um, if you have fewer than 50 cars of toxic chemicals, uh, then it doesn't need to be even mentioned to the local authorities that it's coming through. Right. If it's more than 50, then they have to mention some some kind of crazy thing like that. Yeah, well, you talk about it. Well, it's, so so now you you wrote the song East Palestine. What, tell me about it. Well, I mean. Honestly, there's just so many disasters going on all over the world all the time that I don't write about. And um, I think oh, I should write something about that. But um, with with this, it just um, it just came on me that when I was noodling around on, on the guitar, I came up with an idea for a song about it, really. Uh, but it's just um, it's just 
describing what happened and uh, and describing how um, it was known that these things were going to happen and this was an entirely preventable disaster that was that was uh, that happened because of political corruption. That's the you know the crux of it in, in terms of the the song. Yeah, that the great cloud of toxic chemicals that was shown on television, which really brought this uh, this whole disaster to. I mean, it might not have ever been uh, known in the uh, in the greater media sphere had it not been for this boneheaded decision to set alight all of these chemicals at once in, in this effort, as I mentioned in the intro, to, to as it was sold, to mitigate the disaster. But it seems that there was more behind that decision than uh, as it was presented. Do you know any more about that, David? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure there's all sorts of, um, well, there's a, a whole lot of bad things about burning it as opposed to letting it all go down into the ground lots of it went into the ground but there were two there's two creeks that passed through uh, the town both of them were completely uh, poisoned thousands of fish died other pets were have died um, and um, people have been made sick and definitely but but as far as I know the uh, burning of the tanks that were but they didn't burn all the tanks of toxic uh, chemicals. They only burned, as far as I read, uh, a two of them or something like that. And it was because of risk of explosion because the temperatures were getting too high. So that that's what I, that's what I read anyway. But um, you know, if if they were also trying to cut corners and avoid cleanup, uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised. I think they've gotten a lot of attention uh, for this, including from the right wing press, which is trying to paint the uh, disaster as as some kind of evidence of uh, the the government's lack of concern for white people, and um, so you know, I think that now the federal government is getting more involved than they otherwise would have been because of all that right wing uh, press coverage. And um, you know what? What unfortunately, I think you're not going to hear too much from either the liberal press or the right wing press is that um, you know our our government is corrupt and doesn't care about the working class generally because the working class doesn't bribe them to. Do things like n- not um, impose regulation on their on the railways, you know, and this is harmful to everybody, uh, especially uh, anybody living near you know, freight lines, which certainly includes a heck of a lot of white people as well as black people and brown people and native people and all kinds of people who are poor, which is where you tend to be when you, uh, you know, people next to the freight yards are often not the not the folks in the mansions. Well, of course, the other side of the tracks were just being, you know, in prox, you know, the, the nearer the proximity you are to the, the tracks, it's not a place where you want to be because of the noise and everything else. And, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, and this whole idea of the media, you know, Pete Buttigieg is the um, the transportation secretary in the Biden administration. He he's been roasted uh, for not going to the site immediately, as has Biden. Uh, and Donald Trump, you know, uh, thinking of train wrecks, he uh, was on the scene uh, and using the occasion, as I mentioned in the intro, in, in the intro, that people have been leveraging this story to their own advantage. And, and Trump was in there, but but Trump had his chance to uh, bring in legislation that would have made trains and uh, freight trains safer on America's rails when he was president. But his administration didn't do anything either. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was uh, 
the main the, the main failure to to regulate the railways uh, happened prior to his election, but certainly he never did anything about it after went during his four years in the White House. It's uh, they're all trying to. Yeah, you I mean, Buttigieg is, is such a corrupt, is such a useless, useless, uh, you know, politician. He's 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 completely in bed with industry. He's completely incapable of imposing regulation. I mean, he just is he's becoming a laughing stock uh, for that reason, even among the liberals, you know, uh, who, who generally are, are not big fans of of government regulation, lest they be accused of being socialists or something like that. You know, well, we- Buttigieg is uh, is. I mean, he he just he just writes letters. You know, he he he, phone, he calls the CEO of Southwest Airlines to complain instead of uh, actually passing laws, which is what he's is supposed to be there to do as the transportation secretary. He's it's his job to regulate these industries, and he's not doing that. Well, and like any citizen, he's sitting. I, I can see him now sitting at his kitchen table, writing an angry letter, to, a letter to the editor, or a letter to the CEO, Mister So and So. You're, you know, <laughs> I mean, but to say a politician is useless—that's that's sort of a redundancy in terms, isn't it? I mean, they politicians don't want to yeah. do anything because anything they do is going to be unpopular with somebody, and especially now in America, and it's true in Canada too, but more obviously so in America, where the political divide is so evenly split where you're sure to piss off 50% of the population no matter what you do. I don't know. It depends on how it's spun and and, and who. I, I think it, it's really all about political corruption at, at the end of the day and, and not so much about polarization you know the polarization is superficial and and uh and, and not really uh not not very real when you really get down to what people believe about most things uh, it, it's these um hot button social issues that everybody's polarized around uh because of media manipulation i think primarily but if you get down to what most people think government is supposed to be there for uh in, in, in basic questions like that uh, there's there's widespread agreement in society in this society about what the role of government should be. It's just when you start introducing words that everybody's heard too much on certain media platforms, you know, that make them think of bad people, you know, bad socialists or bad fascists or whatever it is they've been trained to think is bad. You know, that's when they get all polarized politically. But if you avoid those words and you just talk about, well, should 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 government be responsible for providing housing and health care for everybody? You know, most people say yes, believe it or not. In this country, most people, the vast majority, answer that question with a yes. And uh, that's including Republicans. It's shocking, but it's true. And you can find that with loads of different questions. If it, when, you, when you ask them in, in a neutral, sensible way, you find that we have a socialist majority in this country. They just don't know it. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for reminding me of not falling for the uh, the the red blue uh, yeah. uh, dynamic. This this, this yeah. magician. It's a fake floor. divide. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Grill Radio. I'm speaking today with David Rovix. David is a frequent essayist and a frequent uh, guest on this show, too, over the very many years we've been talking. I don't know what it is, David. I, I can't even remember now, 10 or 12 years anyway. Um, David's yeah. uh, the author of uh, the novel A Busker's Adventures, a, a chronicle of his many adventures. He's been doing this for a quarter of a century now, living as a touring musician. His weekly program is This Week with David Rovix. Uh, you can go to David Rovix, that's with a C R O V I C S dot com. And he's on Substack, and he's like just about everywhere else too that you can be. He's got hundreds and hundreds of original songs, and many more. The, your song map is is 
I don't know of anyone else that does anything like that outside of maybe a library of some kind. Uh, we're talking around his recent article uh, that is at uh, counterpunch.org, among many other places, Communications for Indie Musicians Then and Now. We haven't really got to that yet in a big way, uh, uh, David. So let's talk a little bit about that now. This uh, I, I pulled up a, a little thing here. Because I'm Canadian, anytime I hear about media, I think of Marshall McLuhan, of course. And in his uh, book, Understanding Media, The Extensions of Man from 1964, he writes, if you'll bear with me, quote, the medium is the message. This is merely to say that the personal and social consequences of any medium, that is, of any extension of ourselves, results from the new scale that is introduced into our affairs by each extension of ourselves or by any new technology. When you're writing in, in your in your recent piece, David, communications for indie musicians then and now, it really brought it, it reminded me of McLuhan, where we're in this milieu, this new technology that you're on both sides of. Your career began before the social media, as did my show, and uh, and now you've maneuvered into and through it, and you get a perspective because of your great age of. <laughs> Uh, being around before the technology, which gives you an advantage of those that uh, it's always been there for. What's uh, the push of your article? What, 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 what's the thesis yeah. of communications for Indian musicians then and now? And am I just blowing it way out of proportion to drag Marshall? Oh, no, you got it. You, it. No, no, you're na- you nailed it. And <laughs> I love that quote. It's absolutely true. Yeah, totally. The medium is the message. The medium determines uh, the message in a, such a massive way. And I, I've been at this for 30 years now. So it's just, it's the, in the, in the article, I talk about the past 25 specifically because the, the, those are the years during which I have, and most people have had email and access to the internet. Right. So of course we all know lots of geeks who um, were doing the internet as far back as the eighties or, or before then. Um, but uh, the vast majority of, of society, including myself, didn't uh, start using the internet in any, you know, significant way until like 1997 or so. And that was, um, so, I mean, it's basically been 25 years of the internet and 17 years of domination of the internet and and of our communications by corporate social media platforms, like it or not, that's the reality. And and these different periods, uh, pre-internet and post-internet, but pre-social media and, and and post social media, you know, have have all been have had massively different aspects to them in terms of uh, how we communicate and uh, how we understand the world and how we um, also um, make a living. And uh, which which I mean, for for anybody like a journalist or a musician or an artist. You know, you use these kinds of means of communication as a sort of a freelance, you know, a DIY or or sole proprietor or whatever. You use these forms of communication to promote your work. I mean, that's the essential use of communication other than just to be human and communicate with other humans is to, uh, you know, it's part of your, your work. You, that's how you sell paintings or get gigs performing or uh, sell your services as a journalist or whatever it is you're doing. So certainly for anybody remotely related to what we today call content creation um you know the internet has has been massive and corporate social media has been massive and it's been massive mostly in a negative way overwhelmingly negative 
in terms of, um, I mean, I, I basically break it down into the different uses of uh, communication uh, for artists specifically and um, for musicians, traveling musicians specifically, myself and, um, you know, specifically and what the different uses of the internet are for communicating with people uh, and how we did it before the internet and how we have done it since the internet. And um, I just kind of break it down and, and, I, and basically some things are about as good as they used to be and, and with some things there was a temporary advantage of the internet being around that was killed off later by corporate social media and um, with other aspects uh, things have just clearly gotten worse um, and uh, specifically some of those ways are well one, one way that's that's very well known for anybody familiar with the whole streaming reality uh, is uh, you know, making a living, which has been devastating. But there's so much more than than that. Um, and you know, one of them that I start with is is um, receiving insults because this is a phenomenon that uh, just didn't used to happen in any kind of significant way. Um, that may be different for really famous uh, musicians or movie stars or whatever. I'm sure there's ways that they probably <clears throat> got inundated with negative um feedback from society uh, when you are a certain at a certain level of fame <clears throat> but i think you have to be really famous before you get to that point where that kind of thing might even happen because uh, certainly for me i was um pretty much i'd say as well known in the late 90s as as i have been at any time since then for a variety of different reasons and uh but but still at no point um before uh social media um, did i get deluged with with daily uh insults um about my uh intelligence or my music or uh who i have talked to on my youtube channel or whatever it is people uh, think they need to uh, publicly denounce me for you know that just didn't used to happen it's a well you do thing. you do right that oh there was a time when i used to get insulting phone calls from some dedicated guy who didn't like me and sometimes he'd call sure. as often as daily I mean, first of all, do you miss that guy? guy? And though. secondly, has this one guy become the, the is maybe he was the prototype for the modern communication system that followed? Yeah. yeah, and who knows how many how many actual trolls are there on Reddit and 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 Twitter, and how many of them are the same person? It's that guy. It's, it's that you know, same guy. It, it could be the same guy. I mean, you can tell that that uh, many of the accounts are the same. Uh, person because of the way that they either that or they're all listening to the same podcast or something because they they love to use exactly the same vocabulary and they exhibit the same kinds of bizarre kind of macho behaviors you know coming from people that are supposed to be leftists which is always a bit odd when they start with this macho it's, it's sexist stuff and i think well, who are these people and who are they even pretending to be i'm not even sure who you know if it's an agent pretending to be a leftist they're getting it wrong because the leftists are, are not supposed to make macho you know, sexist statements that's not a leftist kind of thing to do generally you know so then i wonder who are these people i don't even know who they're pretending to be but there's there's clearly they, they clearly want to pretend to be a lot of people. You know, they, they want to appear to be uh, numerous and, and the platforms make it extremely easy for, for them to do that. You know, I mean, these platforms, if they weren't designed by intelligence agencies who are bent on on uh, atomizing and society and destroying the left and and, um, you know, polarizing everybody into little camps and fiefdoms. 
if they weren't designed for that purpose, they should have been because they're doing exactly that really effectively and very profitably at the same time. Well, well, that leads to uh, something that uh, an, another piece that you've written in a tech counterpunch, and I really want to talk about uh, Robert Hoyt. Uh, David, now this article that you wrote, remembering Robert Hoyt, it's a, a really moving uh, article you've written in uh, memorializing him, plus an ancient photograph of, well, maybe ancient might hmm. be putting too fine a point on it, of yourself and Robert, and of course, Over 30 Claude. years old, I'd say, yeah. Well, who, who was Robert? Who was Robert Hoyt then? Robert Hoyt was um, born in in Georgia in eighteen in nineteen fifty four, and um, he was um, the Robert Hoyt I knew was a, a brilliant uh, singer songwriter, guitarist, pianist, singer, and um, and he I would say led a variety of lives, not in a not in a two faced kind of way, but just kind of had very distinct phases to his life i would say and and um i think most people that knew robert uh, knew the robert of the 1990s who spent the entirety of that decade on tour throughout the united states as a uh, basically um a, a troubadour for for earth first although i mean he was more than that he was a you know three-dimensional person but that's that's um probably the the political sort of uh identity that he would most uh, strongly embrace and he wrote a lot of great uh, songs and put out three really kick-ass uh, albums during that period of like between i guess 89 to, to 2001 basically as the period of of his of the height of his activity as a as a earth first troubadour basically as a singer songwriter and m most of that time he was living out of the back of a pickup truck, one of a few different pickup trucks he went through during massive amounts of traveling around the country in a pickup truck. And most of that time happened to coincide with being the human for a paraplegic cat named Claude, who, who was paralyzed from the waist down in a tragic accident sometime in, I believe, the late 80s. And then basically when, when Robert started traveling around performing, uh, he was he was the caretaker for this paraplegic cat, which if anybody out there has taken care of a paraplegic cat, then you know that this is a very active role that requires your presence on, on a, you know, pretty much every few hours at the very least to help this cat with their uh, needs. And um, so that Claude, in, in many ways, uh, sort of defined Robert's existence um, and uh, also a wonderful guy made a really nice uh, documentary about uh, Robert's travels with his cat called Travels with Claude, which really does a great job of capturing uh, a few days in the life of, of Robert's uh, existence, um, at least part of a Midwest tour, basically. And, um, yeah. Well, and, and you and you you write you write about going on tour with him yourself, and 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 how formative that was uh, for you, and and for no other reason for all of the connections that you made that carried you through the rest of your career, and 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 people that you still know uh, and communicate with now, all these years later. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just being being a friend of Robert's before we started touring together, I met so many wonderful folks just through kind of bumming around with him and and uh, meeting up with him in different places. And well, you know, one of the things about being friends with a touring musician long before I was a touring musician myself was 
you get to see them wherever it is that you if you're an itinerant type like young person like I was and so many others are I was living in different places and you'd always see Robert because he was traveling so you know I'd always see him whether it was Boston or Seattle or whatever except for a lot of folks but then um, when uh, he always kind of had it put it out there knowing that I had a past as a bass player. He always put it out there that if I ever wanted to travel with him and play bass and sing harmonies, that I should just say the word. And um, I, I don't know why it took me so long to um, to uh, agree to do that with him, but I did. And, and then um, that was definitely the, the most, uh, I mean, when I started doing that you know, with him, it kind of coincided with when I also started writing a lot more songs and was was thinking about doing that kind of songwriting touring thing and um and he kick-started that in a in a brilliant way um better than anything i mean i always tell other folks who are looking to start touring and playing original songs and stuff that the best possible way to do that is to hook up with somebody else who's doing the same kind of thing you want to do and and um you know supporting them as an opening act or singing with them or whatever but definitely I was, I was opening for him at all these you know, all these gigs and that was the key thing that got me lots of gigs afterwards it, i don't think it would have worked that way if i was just playing bass and singing harmonies with him but the fact that he was having me open for him was uh was really like each gig was like an audition and i was passing you know at, at each gig you know because the folks who had hired him to perform were obviously in the audience you know at each of the gigs so um you know and this was also back at a time when you are getting hired to perform. I mean, this is a, for a lot of musicians today. That's a foreign concept. You know, you, you 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 organize a gig, you rent the venue, and you hope you get a crowd that's big enough that you might do better than break even. That's the reality for so many DIY musicians today in the U.S. The way it was back then was um, there were gigs like that, but there were then there were also lots of gigs where you'd play on a college campus for a aggressive college group of students who had a budget in thousands or tens of thousands every year that they spent on things like visiting musicians and and speakers and putting on events and putting in stuff like that renting a bus to go somewhere stuff like that and uh, so this was uh, the bread and butter for musicians like robert and then later for many years for me uh, these kinds of college gigs all of which basically dried up by the early 2000s for some reason yeah, well, you, you give a litany, at least well, of a very few of some of those people you say, you, you you cite, uh, um, Daryl Cherney, Judy Barry, uh, Danny Dollinger, Dan, uh, Dana Alliance, Casey Neal, Peg Millett. I, I'm sorry to say, other than Judy Barry, who, of course, was more famous for being blown up by the FBI, I, I don't recognize any of these names. You've done a, a, a whole project at your website, davidrovics.com where you're uh, on activi- activist music, which is something that, you know, as a music producer or as a, a program a content creator myself, but uh, mm-hmm. I've often looked for, you know, musical numbers to break up segments of shows. And I've always been frustrated by uh, the lack of, uh, 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 what is it, what would you, uh, political isn't really the right term, but of uh, a protest music or of culturally active music in that regard, it's always been hard to find. Mm-hmm. And you've made a big effort to make that, uh, that those kinds of artists and their music available through your site. Yeah, I really want everybody out there to know that this is a long-standing global tradition and it also... Part of the confusion with with some of these kinds of things is 
there's a also a tendency you know that's that goes way back in the music industry to turn individual musicians or songwriters into some kind of a you know mythic legendary kind of like genius kind of you know that's the, that's how they they all get pitched and so if you were to pitch somebody by saying well this person's really good but they're just part of a broader tradition well that's not you know how you want to pitch people generally but it's the reality is that when you're talking about people who are writing songs uh, about what goes on in the world um what you know which which we call we, you know, whether we talk political music or topical or protest or whatever you know terms we try to use to you know encapsulate what it is that this music is doing it's basically it's hard it's hard to describe because it's it, because of the music industry you know we're it's not your fault you can't come up with a good name for it you know it goes way back because the music industry, like way back a hundred years ago, told us that if you're writing, uh, writing anything about anything other than songs about relationships, love lost, love found, you know, uh, staying up all night, having a party, you know, if you're if you're not if you're writing about something other than those acceptable subjects, then it is basically novelty music or it's political or it's something you know that should be pushed off to the margins. But historically, this kind of music is the norm, actually. It was the music industry that tried to flip things around and say that love songs are the norm and everything else is is weird. You know, that was, you know, love songs have always been the norm, too. But so have songs about, you know, wars and police brutality and mind disasters and corrupt politicians. Ever since we've been writing songs in English, there have been songs about all of those things that I just listed, you know. And, uh, and in the current era, or particularly in the 90s, in the era that I was describing in my article about traveling with Robert, musicians like Dana Lyons and Casey Neal and, and Daryl Cherney and Judy Berry, Peg uh, Millett, I mean, in the Earth First scene, those uh, were and are in many cases still uh, the musicians who were um, keeping that kind of tradition alive. Well, and you mentioned too a couple others that I do know actually, Ann Feeney and Chris Chandler, and they and they're friends of yours as well. And Ann Feeney, of course, uh, she passed away a, a couple of few years ago now, but they they're you know hugely. Uh, uh, what's the term? What term we use? Like like uh, uh, singers of relevant songs, I guess, as as you put it yourself. Yeah, I like uh, the term that I first learned from a wonderful two-woman duo in Seattle named uh, Rebel Voices, uh, Janet Secker and Susan Lewis. They uh, they had an album a long time ago, I guess in the 80s, called Songs of Social Significance, which was named after a uh, song by the same name from a Broadway musical in the 1930s. And uh, and I I just thought that that was a nice, had a nice ring to it, Songs of Social Significance. So that's what I have on my website as well but it's uh yeah songs that are about life on earth so it's hard to it's hard to pin that down with a label because it's too broad you know but but the media in the 60s started calling it protest music that's what they called it embraced that term because it's it's you know just like people embrace the term hippie you know i mean nobody called themselves hippies in the 60s you know that was the media calling people hippies but eventually <laughs> you know people that the term stuck because when you'd say a term like freak, you know, or radical or whatever, people would wonder, well, what are you talking about? Who's that? You know, but we've heard the term hippie, you know, and same with protest music. If you say I'm a topical musician, which is what like somebody like <laughs> Phil Oaks like to call himself a topical musician. The problem with that is nobody knows what you're talking about. <laughs> How do you do? I'm David, a singer of songs of social significance. And you? Yeah. 
Right. I mean, you can put that on your website, but when you're going to introduce yourself, like you can say, I'm a singer songwriter with a political bent or something, you know, something that's a little like, easy to understand. Well, bent, you could be, you can get into deep water with that term right away. But when you, when you talk about, you know, being singers being sold and sold singularly uh, as a superstar or something extraordinary, uh, and which you know, many of these people are, are extraordinarily talented and everything else. It reminds of the lyric, the Pink Floyd lyric, uh, you know, which one's pink. And, and it's funny to me that it, it seems that the propaganda machine uh, in the geopolitical sense, at least in the United States and its acolytes, are using that same thing. Which one is pink? Well, pink is Putin. You know, you, they always pick out a singular character to heap upon that that individual all of the evil attributes that Satan enjoys as well. You know, that it it, it makes things so much simpler to sell. Yeah, the simple sell. I mean, it's the media is um, more propagandistic than it it has ever been in my entire life, which is really saying something. I I lived through 2003, 2001. I was uh, I I, I can imagine the media being more propagandistic and nationalistic and Islamophobic and everything else than it was then. But now, uh, yeah, we we see what is possible. And it's now not just the U.S. media, but the entire Western press. And I used to listen to, um, I mean, I still do listen to the German and the French and other other English language broadcasts from different um, broadcasters in other countries, because it used to be actually there was a discernibly different, uh, even even if it's another, you know, European wealthy uh, country, you know, they there there were significant political differences and differences in how they covered things that could be found quickly by uh, you know watching Franz von Kacha or listening to Radio Deutsche Welle or something like that. But that all changed um, with the past year, and it's been uh, it's just been. Uh, I mean, I know there are certainly political differences between the leaders of countries like the U.S. and many European countries, which which behind the scenes uh, may have very different attitudes about what they would have liked to do uh, about, um, you know, whatever issues they had with the Russian government, which, of course, is always summed up as being all about one guy, which is also ridiculous. You know, in terms of the foreground, what they put out in the, in the press, it's it's been just a remarkable lockstep one of biden's favorite terms which is funny that he liked it so much but they're just in lockstep absolutely well, it vilifying like- putin and making it you know making it all out to be uh this uh dried situation of a uh, the favorite word of course unprovoked an unprovoked invasion which is a very interesting and i think intentional way to confuse uh, the words uh, unjustified and unvoked, because uh, justifying something is a matter of opinion and it's a matter of strategy, you know, but provocation, I mean, that's very simple. And it, it's, a, it's a pretty low bar to, 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 to explain what's provoked and what's not provoked. And they're just lying every time they say unprovoked, because it's obviously uh, there's so many provocations that uh, how can you even say unprovoked with a, with a, you know, serious face? I mean, you're, it's uh, they list the possible provocation, but what they're doing is intentionally confusing the concept of provocation with justification, which is a moral concept. Justification is a moral concept. Provocation is is an observable thing. Like you, 
you expand NATO against your, um, you know, you promise not to expand NATO and then you do, you, you, you promise not to send missiles into a country, then you do, you know, that's called provocation. That's a, that's a basic definition of provocation. If those aren't provocative actions, then there is no such thing as provocative. Then you should just stop using the word provocation because it has no place in the English language unless you're going to actually define it. Like you punch me, I punch you back. You know, you punch me, that's a provocation. I punch you back, that's a response. You know, that's that's very clear. You know, you, you put missiles in the neighboring country, you invite them to join a military alliance that was formed to keep you in contained by its very definition, by its own um, by its own self-definition. It's, it exists to contain you and then you put missiles in a neighboring country. You know, that, that's a provocation, right? clearly. So that every time the media says the unprovoked invasion, they're lying. Every time, every day, every minute. Well, and the word itself, I mean, the words are important uh, for, for more than just the meaning they convey, uh, obviously, but for what they come to mean. And provocation is now one of those terms where anyone that utters that, oh, well, there was provocation on the part of the West and NATO, especially uh, as regards the uh, what's going on in Ukraine right now, is the key trigger for people to say, well, you're a Putin defender then you're, you're you're trying to justify what putin did we, we've seen the media now is is worse than i've ever seen it and i've been studying it for 30 years myself and yeah. or even more actually i'm, I'm sorry to say yeah. Yeah. but uh, <laughs> uh there's a clear progression and you said you know 2001 2003 well 2003 is interesting because that that's the anniversary i'm i'm assuming that you're referring to the anniversary of america's invasion of Iraq, which the anniversary yeah. for is just any day now, as as uh, as yeah. we speak, uh, with March twenty or eighteen or twenty, as I yep. recall, and and, uh, and yet we're seeing these same ki kinds of people in the American administration standing up, and I just I got that image of Colin Powell with his little vial at the United Nations, and and citing as the provocation for America's invasion of that country and all the disaster that, that followed that being uh, the so-called weapons of mass destruction that Iraq possessed and America knew because they had the receipts is the old joke. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's it's really remarkable how the, it's, things can happen almost neatly on the 20th anniversary of, of other similar events. You know, the, the lies, that, the, the 31 lies that General Powell uh, recited at the United Nations right around this time, 20 years ago, was it? Uh, and now uh, it's uh, just a, a whole litany of uh, of made-up history, just total revising of the past 30 years, to say nothing of, of course, you know, the past uh, century of, uh, of of Western Russian relations and provocations and proxy wars and. Uh, Cold, so-called cold wars and hot wars and millions dead and cities carpet bombed, infrastructure completely destroyed from the air by the U.S. Air Force and country after country after country. And then they just uh, ignore all that and, and talk about provocations in only one way, not the other. It's, uh, it's just a totally made up history, just, just as of the same quality as General Powell's 31 lies. And the results, I mean, these last, uh, I, we've talked about this before, and I've mentioned, uh, at the risk of being repetitive, that when I started the show was during the war against the former Yugoslavia, and all of the lies mm. and, and the the 
media manipulation that was going on then, though it was, I think, nascent. It was. It seemed to me it was being. It, they were new tricks being tried out, but since then we've seen that the same thing honed and perfected. Uh, this mani- media ma- manipulation and this uh, co-op co-opting of media, embedding into uh, the message of this industrial uh, killing. Uh, uh, project has gotten better and better, but it always repeats. Uh, we've seen it time and again now for these last 20 years. It, it's just been going well more than 20 years now, but going from one thing to the next. It's like a script. I mean, it's like you can just write it in advance. You just you know, much of the time you you know what's going to happen next. And what's remarkable is that it keeps on working, and that people don't seem to remember when they did this the last time you know i mean in some cases because they're not old enough but in in other cases i don't really understand how they can fall for this again and again well i wonder if they do i mean or maybe we're just told they do like as you mentioned rightly to me that the america isn't divided the american polity isn't divided the way it's uh projected to be on the media people have a lot more in common than they do have differences and i wonder in this case if we're just told that we believe something because it's convenient for us to believe it but do people still believe this i think that's i think yeah you're right for to a large extent that's true and and so much of this uh what appears to be consent is manufactured absolutely but there are definitely people who who drink Kool-Aid and I and you know at least um I mean of course it's impossible to separate online from offline you know but I I feel like it's much more real when I actually meet people in person uh in the real physical world who who have these kinds of views not just somebody on Twitter who may or may not be a bot or an agent uh and of course you don't know necessarily who the agents are but at least when you meet somebody at a concert you know they're not a bot and um there are a lot of real people, including uh, highly intelligent people who um, have come to the conclusion that uh, sending uh, massive amounts of military aid to Ukraine is a good idea. And um, I understand that it's a very complicated thing and I have deep concern uh, and sympathy for all those Ukrainians who have been killed and all of the Ukrainian refugees and all of those cities destroyed. Uh, Absolutely. Just as I had uh, sympathy and, and empathy for all of the Iraqis who were refugees because of the same kinds of circumstances. But, you know, this doesn't mean that uh, I think that the, the solution to the problem here is uh, sending billions of dollars worth of missiles to uh, the U- Ukrainians who are fighting the Russian invaders. And this is there's a lot of other possible uh, possible paths to take aside from brinksmanship and bringing us closer to Armageddon than we've been in the history of the planet. Um, you know, there are alternatives to that and they need to be pursued like right now, you know, yesterday and 30 years ago. But, you know, they should have been pursued a hell of a long time ago, but they weren't. And, uh, you know, it may or may not be too late to pursue them now, but as long as we're still breathing, then it's not too late to pursue alternatives to annihilation. Yeah, and those those alternative paths will be pursued in the future if you know, uh, barring Armageddon, because that's the way all wars end. Uh, they f- people end up sitting down and, and talking. You know, I I would hate to conflate your comment about uh, intelligent people. Uh, believing that sending these arms and everything else is the right thing to do with the people in my country uh, at the helm of the uh, 
political process, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau being foremost among them. But he too has gone along with this idea that if Canada sending billions and billions of dollars and loads of armaments and soldiers and so-called trainers and everything else, that's happening in this country too. So for those in the United States who, who still harbor this idea that Canada is different than America or that the name Trudeau means what now what it meant when our current prime minister's father was the leader of this country, uh, I'll just read you a little bit from what comes from Trudeau's office uh, just um, yesterday. It says, one year ago, Putin launched a brutal full-scale invasion of Ukraine in the face of the immense human suffering, appalling human rights violations, and cruelty inflicted upon the people of an independent sovereign nation. Ukraine still stands strong. And then he goes on to say that we will, Canada will back them as the header of this uh, press release from the Prime Minister's office says, right to the to the bitter end that that Canada will continue down this war path he's saying providing billions of Canadian taxpayer dollars and all the armaments we can round up and send along and whatever covert support as well until the final objective is reached although the final objective isn't quite pulled up spelled out uh, but it seems obvious that that final objective is the destruction of at least uh, Vladimir Putin, if not Russia entirely. Very unclear. They never like to talk about the final objective because it's the possibilities are too horrifying to consider because obviously one of them is the annihilation of life on Earth. You know, and then, you know, I don't know what the other possibilities are, but that's definitely the one that concerns me the most. And it's also a very likely outcome here. And it's, uh, it's uh, really uh, just... Yeah, it's it's not not the way not the way to go. But definitely, um, it's it's not just uh, the politicians um, who who believe that sending all these arms are a good idea. There are there are a lot of people who 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 have who support this. And who, you know, as as you know, it's not it's not just mythology that you know that people go and join the Ukrainian army. You know, I don't know how many people are doing it these days, but at the beginning, uh, there were quite a few from other parts of the world. I mean, and also like most anarchists in, in Ukraine at this point, from what I've heard from, from uh, European anarchists in other parts of Europe, they have joined the Ukrainian military. You know, there's a lot of people who, who think this is the way to go and they have their reasons. Um, and and especially for those who are Ukrainians, they have very sensible reasons. I completely empathize, you know, but on the broader geopolitical uh, level here in terms of thinking about uh, our species and life on Earth generally, the confliction is the only sensible path when it comes to uh, conflicts between the U.S. and Russia. To say, you know, forgetting about any of the actual other good reasons for the confliction or for just not having this, you know, rivalry in the first place, uh, you know, because it, it's a totally manufactured rivalry in the first place. There is no there is no Russian empire at all. By the same token, there's no Chinese empire either. All this uh, use, you know, there's no reason there needs to be this, this rivalry between these countries. It's being manufactured in Washington, D.C. China and Russia are not trying to take over the world. Uh, they're just in the world. Those countries are in the world. And the U.S. is constantly making life and politics and economics uh, difficult for those countries in all kinds of intentional ways. And um, th there's other ways these conflicts can be resolved if they need to exist in the first place. You know, I'm not personally all for, um, you know, taxing uh, 
Chinese imports if you're doing that because of uh, China not paying their workers enough, you know, but of course that's not why it's happening. You know, that that would be a, that would be a good good kind of move if we could have uh, tariffs that were related to um, how badly uh, countries pay their workers. That would be a good incentive to uh, increase wages. And that 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 kind of thing, I would I would think would be a a sensible move. But um, these uh, threats of war and sending arms to Taiwan and to Ukraine and and uh, constantly talking about intentions to invade which didn't exist but are being provoked you know through these kinds of policies of these brinkmanship policies of the biden administration and others notably uh to 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 some extent not necessarily including the trump administration but um it's uh it's not the way to go well globalization of the right things as a talk by david suzuki i recall uh it sounds like what you're saying we don't mind globalization if it's globalization of environmental yeah. standards it's if it's yeah. globalization of union or worker protection yeah, labor worker rights yeah. or these sort of things Safety. yeah by all means globalize it but what we've seen is the, the like the strip mollification of media uh, that across at least the what used to be called the western civilization that uh, yeah, there, there's nowhere really to run uh, other than into the arms of the enemy. I mean, uh, to just briefly get back to Robert Hoyt, before we talk about your upcoming album, Killing the Messenger, which I promoted in the intro, we haven't said one word mm. about yet, but uh, mm-hmm. but Robert Hoyt's, uh, uh, one of his albums is American as You, and it reminds me of this idea that, uh, oh, well, if you don't love it, then leave it. You know, if you don't love America, leave it. If you're critical, you know, love it or leave it was the old saying, usually a right-wing saying, but, you know, yeah. get out of here. If you, if you don't like it, well, getting out of here, there's nowhere to go. You're not going to get out of America and come to Canada and expect anything different or go to Germany or anywhere in Western Europe because they're all singing from the same songbook now. So that's the segue because we're fast running out of time, David. The Killing the Messenger is your album. It's coming up now. Tell me a little bit about the album what's on there and uh and who's killing whom well the, definitely the killing the killing the messenger uh concept uh, could be related to all sorts of different people um but uh, in this case it is definitely related to julian assange um there's uh, three songs on the album that are uh, about his persecution his ongoing persecution and the uh, efforts of the u.s government to extradite him and put him in prison for 175 years for exposing U.S. war crimes. And um, other songs on the album are are about other uh, equally controversial subjects. And it's all, it was all recorded, or sort of partly it's that recording continues, but as far as my part in it and um, other musicians involved, we were in Hawaii for the last half of January working on the album and uh, should be out um sometime in the next few weeks. April 11th is the anniversary, of the fourth anniversary of Assange being uh, illegally extracted, at least against Mm. international law, from his uh, asylum in a foreign nation's embassy, uh, Ecuador in this case, who uh, signed off on him being taken out, although that doesn't make it legal that that happened. Four years Mm. he's been in process, in prison, in a max prison uh, in, uh, in London, uh, and and just wasting away. I mean, uh, that adds to all the time he spent uh, in, in asylum before that, and various yeah. other things. It's abs- it's an abs it's uh, beyond, and it means so much for not only, of course, for him, but for journalism and for all of us that rights can be so e- easily uh, swept away. Um, yeah, 
if they uh, can do this to him, they can do it to any of his uh, any of the uh, journalistic outfits uh, outlets that uh, collaborated with WikiLeaks on exposing all of those things that he exposed with the uh, war crimes and the embassy cables and everything. Um, yeah. You know, as you know, potentially anybody, any editor or journalist at the New York Times or, you know, The Guardian or yeah. El Pais or whatever, they could all go to prison. Yeah, but I, I don't expect that that's going to be something no. that's going to happen anytime soon. You're going on tour soon, though. You're going to be off to autumn in Australia. Yeah, I mean, I guess it'll be their autumn. I'll be, it's next month for us, it's spring. Uh, yeah, I'll be uh, March 20th to April 12th in Australia and later in April, I'll be on the East Coast around DC, Virginia, I think. And then uh, in uh, late May and June, I'll be in Denmark and, and Britain and Ireland. Wow, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, following the sun, you get the nice weather. I see that you like the weather, right? You're going to follow this uh, from Hawaii to Australia, then up to good idea. Well, no, it's completely coincidental. I really prefer winter. And when I was <laughs> um, in uh, Australia, one of my uh, musical collaborators, uh, Lorna McKinnon from, from Glasgow, uh, she was really looking forward to going to Hawaii uh, and recording because you know everybody wants to go to Hawaii because you've heard all these things about it and you know basically as soon as we got there it took about 10 minutes before she was like it's too hot and um, <laughs> you know I, I knew it would be too hot and I completely agreed with her already you know but but it, she had to, to experience it herself to, to realize that it's too hot and then um, you know we got into the into the coffee farm in the woods where we were making the album and she immediately started getting eaten by mosquitoes and then it's too um, mosquito-y. Oh yeah, and then basically by the time we <laughs> we came home uh, or get back to Portland, uh, we were both uh, truly looking forward to the freezing rain that we knew was going to be greeting us when we got off the plane, and oh. we truly enjoyed the freezing rain, and we were both still happy to be back um, when we got back. So no, I I've actually toured. I've I used to do it um, a long time ago. Uh, where I would go to Australia in their winter and do a tour there so I could skip summer in Portland and have two winters, one here and one in, in Australia. I did that several years, but it's not always, uh, it hasn't always been easy to engineer it that way since I started having kids and stuff. So I, I'm ending up home for the hot summer against my will in order to spend time with the children. But um, no, I really prefer where it's always below the below 70 Fahrenheit for sure should well, be above that. Well, that's hardly winter, but well, all right. The contrary, David Rovix, you can find at davidrovix.com and his many works as usual, David, I, I can't uh, even scratch on all the stuff that you're up to, but what I'm really going to do, I'm going to follow up on Robert Hoyt and uh, the travels with Claude, uh, documentary about he and his cat Claude, which is on YouTube, as your article mentions. And that article, again, is up at counterpunch.org, remembering Robert Hoyt. It's at David's other platforms as well, but that's where I saw this one. Thanks a lot, David, for coming on again and for all the work that you do. And good luck on your the next leg of your continuing uh, world adventure. Thank you very much, Chris. Great talking to you. All right, then. You can hear the time bomb tick in the town of East Palestine. Acrid air across the county, who knows whether to stay or flee. 
EPA says it's all clean. It says so on this machine in the town of East Palestine. The next disaster's coming soon, as surely as the rising moon. The air, the water, and lives at stake. But we can't make them get new breaks. Just ask the folks in East Palestine.